Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to get to medical conferences, but no one knows the study leave code, no one will cover your shift, you don't like online learning, and anyway, you actually thought the BTS was an Asian boy band. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, listeners, to part two of the unofficial BTS Winter Meeting 2021 podcast extravaganza. This is Journal Spotting, the medical podcast which brings you regular roundups of practice-changing literature, expert interviews, hot topics, and more. Shout out to HEE and St. George's Healthcare, whose grant has meant that we can keep these episodes coming your way to fill your minds with what's going on in the medical world. Thanks. In the last conference episode, we filled the airwaves with all things airway, COPD, asthma, and cough. If you haven't listened, get your earbuds over there now, or later, up to you, and hear what the experts are saying. Today, in part two, we are covering a range of fascinating subjects, including infection, TB, air pollution, pleural disease, and even aging. To help us get through these complex issues, we have myself, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, my wonderful co-host, Dr. Katia Florman, respiratory consultant and climate zone co-host, Dr. LJ Smith, respiratory consultant, Dr. James Murray, and specialist registrar, Matt Berman. As always, please swipe over to Apple Podcasts and leave us some stars or a review. Hit subscribe on whichever platform you use, follow us on Twitter and share us with all your friends. Yeah, do it, people. Um, Right, Katia, (laughs) let's get on with the episode and hear what the experts say. Let's go. Hi, I'm Dr. LJ Smith, respiratory consultant at King's College Hospital in London. It's great to be back sharing highlights from this year's Winter BTS. My interesting personal fact is that when on elective in Mumbai, India, I was talent spotted to be an extra in a Bollywood movie and was then a little surprised to be given the role of NHS nurse, complete with an outfit more at home in the 1950s. The film is real and is called Dil Dear Hey and is a truly terrible film scoring 3.5 out of 10 on IMDb. I only managed to attend BTS on Friday this year, but it scored a definite 10 out of 10 for me, as I was really excited to see such a strong focus on the social determinants of health in key lectures and symposia. The Grand Challenge Lecture on Child Poverty and Health Inequalities by Professor David Gordon provided a horrifyingly detailed account of the extent and health effects of child poverty, not just globally, but right here locally in the UK. It was a humbling reminder of how little scope we have to improve someone's life and health by the time they turn up in our hospitals or clinic rooms, and a reminder that it's impossible to separate medicine and politics. The amount of money required to raise every child out of poverty globally is less than US citizens spend on pizza annually. This is within our gift. But the day got even better with the Symposium on Air Pollution, a personal interest. This brought together research, practice and activism in a way I've never before seen at the BTS. Dr Matthew Hort from the Met Office started by explaining the primary and secondary pollutants relevant to human health, particularly particulate matter, nitrogen dioxide and ozone. And he described the effect of weather not only across regions or countries, but also hyperlocally. He made the important point that air pollution and climate change are inextricably linked and will be key issues for our future. And he also highlighted how individual actions can impact both air quality and exposure. 
Professor Frank Kelly, who you'll remember from episode 31 of Journal Spotting, then outlined the health impacts of air pollution across the life course and gave some great examples of studies which make this accessible and real to clinicians. These included data on fetal growth impacted by maternal air pollution exposure, East London school children with small lung volumes, the now classic Oxford Street traffic exposure study, and a cohort study on dementia and residential levels of air pollution in London. And this leaves out the more obvious effects on respiratory conditions. It's sobering to be reminded of the numbers, an estimated 4.2 million deaths per year are due to air pollution. These come from strokes, heart disease, lung cancer and acute respiratory diseases. Importantly, he reminded us that city air pollution is not only due to tailpipe exhausted emissions. We also need to consider non-exhaust particulate matter, such as from brake pads, microplastics and also domestic wood burning in cities. Switching to electric vehicles is not the simple answer to solving our air quality crisis and more radical changes to how we live and travel are needed. Professor Sir Stephen Holgate gave a talk entitled Why Ella Kissy Deborah's New Inquest Was So Important and showed how there is no safe level of air pollution. This was really highlighted in a 2017 New England Journal of Medicine paper in which the Medicare population mortality data was linked to air pollution with the slope passing through zero. This could be interpreted as quite disheartening, as we can't eliminate harm from air pollution completely. But in fact, this offers a huge opportunity, as any reduction will save a significant number of lives. And we have the knowledge and technology to massively reduce air pollution from the levels we're starting at today. Professor Holgate eloquently explained how air pollution is a social injustice with the most vulnerable contributing least and suffering the most from the effects of air pollution. He showed how within the epidemiological data on the harms from air pollution are individuals, individuals like Ella Kissy Deborah, who tragically died aged nine. Her new inquest re-evaluated the evidence on environmental factors impacting on her severe asthma and concluded that air pollution was a cause of her development of asthma and her death. Professor Holgate provided an insight into the vast amounts of data presented at the inquest, which showed that Ella was thoroughly investigated for other causes of exacerbations, such as infections and allergies. These did not explain her severe disease. The data shows starkly that air pollution levels in Lewisham were consistently above recommended so-called safe limits and correlated with her multiple hospital admissions. Ella's mum, the inspiring Rosamond, then took the stage, She was recently recognised for her campaigning and was made a WHO Breathe Life ambassador. Well deserved. Rosamond compelled us to remember that children have the right to breathe clean air and that breathing clean air is a human right, one we are not currently honouring. She advocated for more monitoring, raising awareness and policy change. She asked all health healthcare professionals to get up to speed and use our voice to affect change. Specifically, she asked us to engage with the consultation on the Environment Bill and to ask for lower limits for air pollution to be enshrined in law. In possibly the most powerful sentence of the conference, Rosamond said, people in health need to make a lot of noise or people will continue to die. These two talks, the Grand Challenge Lecture and the Symposia, reminded me of the importance of seeing the patient within the context of their life and to reconsider how I can make an impact. The BTS this year has encouraged me to pledge to use my voice as a healthcare professional more powerfully in 2022 on issues such as child poverty, climate change and air pollution. I hope you will too. Now, I don't usually venture into the linked paediatric sessions at the BTS, but I did on Wednesday as the topics were fascinating. 
Professor Griggs spoke of the link of air pollution and asthma, and the dangers of things like particulate matter 2.5 and 10. With bronchoscopy, they can see black material in the distal bronchioles of those living in polluted areas. It is unclear exactly what this black stuff does, but it's mostly made up of the particular matter, and they believe will limit lung function development over time. They can also see tiny amounts of this matter elsewhere in the body, such as in the placenta after a baby is born, um, and it's been taken up by phagocytes. Again, it's not really known how this affects the fetus, but we know that pollution can affect them. Globally, there are 4 million new paediatric asthma cases each year caused by pollution. In adults, asthmatics have more exacerbations and their asthma is more severe when the air pollution is worse. The risk of exacerbation is not just on the day of pollution, but extends for about four days after exposure. The UK government are acting on this, but historically we have been great at monitoring air pollution, but terrible at dealing with it. On a positive note though, the huge push to reduce climate change appears to marry nicely with reducing air pollution. So watch this space. Next up in this session, Dr Ian Sinha from Liverpool spoke with the ominous title Poor Nutrition, Destroyer of the Developing Lung. Even pre-birth, poor maternal nutrition leads to poor lung development. And the problem continues from there. It is thought that there is a window of opportunity to ensure children have enough nutrition to have proper growth and that's of, of themselves and their lungs. And this is up to the age of nine years old. After that, much of the damage is done and their lungs may never develop to their full potential. During this time, in resource-poor settings, there is a clear dose-response relationship between the amount of breastfeeding a baby receives and the risk of dying from pneumonia. Obesity and asthma are also inextricably linked. Obesity not only increases the risk of developing asthma, the asthma is more likely to be neutrophilic, less responsive to steroids, less responsive to bronchodilators, and compounded by other comorbidities. Poor nutrition, causing both malnutrition and obesity, are linked to lower socioeconomic status and poverty. Now, here's some of stark facts he gave. The UK has the fifth largest economy in the world. One third of our children in the UK live in poverty. One third. Many people say, well, the parents just need to go to get a job. The fact is, 70% of children who live in poverty have at least one parent who has at least one job. Others say, well, healthier food costs the same or less than unhealthy food. This again is untrue. Crappy processed food works out cheaper per calorie. For poor families, after essential housing costs, to eat healthily, they would have to spend 70p of every pound they have on food. This is impossible. Pre-pandemic, there were more food banks in the UK than McDonald's. And this has only worsened since. It all stacks up against those with a lower socioeconomic status. Poor nutrition, poor housing, air pollution, indoor air pollution, it all leads to excessive inflammation and poor development. Solutions are not easy and need to come from policies. The Tory government probably doesn't help much here. 
We as doctors should be using our voice and our muscle to push for change, better benefits, better jobs, better security for those in need, free school meals, help with food in general. So now I'm gonna just summarize one of the great symposiums I was lucky enough to watch at BTS on Friday. This was entitled Palmary Infection Horizon Scanning, What Could Go Wrong Now? So the first speaker from London was Professor Matthew Fisher, warning us that it's not just antibiotic resistance we need to worry about, but antifungal, i.e. azole resistance too. A lot of this comes from the increasing use of azoles in agriculture as fungicides. Using genomics, he has been able to track azole resistance from the 1920s, with the first resistant isolate of Aspergillus fumigatus occurring in the UK in 2003. They've managed to prove that not only is this highly clinical, re- highly clinically relevant, as azole resistance aspergillus has a much higher mortality rate in patients such as those suffering with cystic fibrosis, but also because it is the same resistant organisms occurring in the environment as in the lungs, which he was re- which he was able to prove through the relatively small number of SNPs separating the isolates. So, what does this mean in practice? Essentially, policy on fungicides needs to adapt especially with climate change, giving the aspergillus heaven we are creating with increasingly warm, wet and high carbon dioxide environments. But also in the clinic, if your patient is in an area with at least 25% prevalence of resistant strains, you may want to consider dual therapy. Then we had Dr. Mersini Kofaru from London, who gave a really clear and exciting talk on precision medicine in infectious diseases, focusing on transcriptonomics. Using blood RNA quantification, her group was able to find biomarkers to assist with challenging diagnoses. They found different collections of blood gene signatures to separate, firstly, bacterial from viral infections, which performed better than CRP and leukocyte count in doing so. And they also looked at TB and were able to distinguish TB from other similar diseases in a more sensitive but less specific way than GeneXpert. And finally, Dr. Neharika Dugal from Birmingham explained her group's findings of accelerated immune aging in severe COVID-19 infections. Essentially, they found that three months post-infection, survivors of severe COVID had features of immunosenescence compared to matched controls. For the uninitiated, immunosenescence is the process of immune dysfunction that occurs with age. And they were able to show that this occurs post-severe COVID in the innate immune response with examples such as accumulation of pro-inflammatory monocytes and increasing numbers of mature and thus ineffective natural killer cells, but also it it affects the adaptive immune response as evidenced by T-cell redistribution, loss of naive T-cells, accumulation of exhausted CD8 T-cells and accelerated B-cell aging with the buildup of memory B-cells. This all, however, begs the chicken or egg question of which came first. Was this immune senescence the reason those patients developed severe COVID-19 in the first place? Or is this a true post-viral phenomenon? They've seen this effect in trauma patients as well. So they think it is likely a post-insult effect, but it's still an area for more exciting research. So my take home points from all of this would be, don't forget about antifungal resistance. Watch this space for transcriptonomics and expect immune dysregulation even three months post severe COVID-19 infections. Thank you very much. 
I'm James Murray. I'm a consultant uh, in respiratory and acute medicine at the Royal Free Hospital. Uh, my subspecialty interests are in lung cancer and pleural diseases. So I was very keen to listen to the probing the pleural space session at the BTS. There were five spoken sessions. I'd like to just go through each of them one by one, summarize what was talked about and the key points. The first one was by Hugh Welch, who's part of the Bristol uh, Academic Respiratory Unit, and he presented the results of the MAPLE study. MAPLE study is the Metabolic Assessment of Plural Effusions, uh, and Hugh started off by telling us a little bit about uh, the history of medicine and how plural fluid diagnostics have been around since about 1900. And we've been looking at protein levels, LDH levels and glucose levels for nearly 60 years. But still frequently, the diagnostics create some uncertainty and can lead to additional procedures or tests. And uh, he outlined the need for much better plural fluid analytics. Uh, he also uh, paid tribute to Richard Light, uh, who came up with Light's criteria, who sadly passed away this year. So uh, the Bristol unit uh, have a large repository of plural fluid samples, and they teamed up with Aberystwyth University, who have a metabolomics laboratory. What is metabolomic? Well, I didn't know this either. One of the benefits of uh, at attending from home is that you can Google stuff that you've got no idea what they're talking about and no one will notice. Uh, so uh, metabolomics is a combination of high resolution mass spectrometry and multivariate statistical analysis. What it does is it, it looks for metabolites in biological samples, cause those features, and then the stats looked for ones that appear common, commonly. They looked at 121 frozen plural fluid samples and they apparently have got lots more. They're looking at various different things. And they took these pure fluid samples uh, and they put, took them to Avaris with and uh, there's a fancy process they go through where they uh, do methanol extraction, cool it, centrifuge it and then do mass spectroscopy. Mass spectroscopy is going to be a, a common theme, I'm afraid, throughout this morning. They looked at uh, three different types of pleural effusion, benign asbestos pleural effusion or BAPE. Uh, effusions related to mesothelioma. Then they looked at other uh, metastatic malignancies causing pleural effusion. They used this technique to look for biomarkers and then they analysed it with area under the curve of receiver operating characteristics. Uh, they found a total of 108 features and 15 of those were able to discriminate benign asbestos pleural from malignancy with an AUC of more than 8.1, so pretty good. The most important feature or, or metabolite is something called 2-benzyl-3-idopropanic acid and that uh, occurred abundantly in malignant effusions and it was really good at separating these out from the benign asbestos uh, uh, effusions with an accuracy of 91%. They factored in up to 10 other features that they'd found in their metabolomics, then that, that rose to 98%, so it's so pretty good. They wondered why this is useful. So. I think importantly, pleural effusions in the context of asbestos exposure might require people to undergo a number of invasive investigations, particularly if, if things like compensation related to asbestos exposure are being explored. And, and those are mainly to exclude mesothelioma and, and or lung cancer. And, and this would be quite useful in identifying benign asbestos-related pleural effusions. They felt that this was useful in understanding the pathophysiology of these conditions and then perhaps in the future to, to identify treatment targets. So I think that's quite, quite a long way away. For this to work, they'd, they'd really have to uh, take it out of the fancy computers and have a risk with and, and develop a, uh, an ideally bedside test that can be used more simply. But it, it sounds like an exciting prospect and technique, and they're extrapolating the same process and applying it to lots of other effusion types. I did mention uh, that, that, that pleural effusion diagnosis hasn't come on much in, in the last six years. That 
I'm not sure that's completely true. There are a few uh, biomarkers about, for example, we use adenosine deaminase in TB and there are various markers like fibulin-3 and mesothelioma. Additionally, if you send large volumes of pleural fluid to the laboratory and they're spun down to create a cell block, that's actually pretty sensitive for malignancy. So that was that, very interesting. The second talk was from Ihab Obadawi, who's from the Oxford Plural Group, and he presented his very interesting work entitled PI1 is the predominant biological factor associated with the development of septations in plural infection. So they looked at uh, plasminogen activator inhibitor 1. Active activator inhibitor sounds a bit sort of oxymoronic. This is a, a protein which is the principal inhibitor of plasminogen activator, which are TPA and urokinase. These inhibit, and this inhibits fibrinolysis. You get increased levels of this in various disease states, including cancer and the metabolic syndrome, and it's linked to the development of thrombosis in these conditions. Several inflammatory conditions cause fibrin deposition and PI1 can cause progression to fibrosis in these states. Importantly, in pleural infection, fibrin deposition can cause septation within the pleural infusion, and that's why we use TPA or urokinase as intrapleural fibrinolytics. Uh, and we know that PI1 impedes local fibrinolysis. So they hypothesized that, that PI1 is a biomarker for poorer outcomes i.e. more septations and loculations in, in plural infection and perhaps as a therapeutic target. They looked at a large prospective cohort. Again, a spectrophotometer or spectrophotometer was, was included here and they measured PI1 levels adjusted for the protein level within each effusion. And then they married that up whether the effusion was either mildly, moderately or heavily septated uh, using a predefined objective ultrasound septation score. That was based on the number of visible septations. Importantly, this is the first study to look at the, the incidence of septations within pleural effusion, and they actually identified them in 80% of all the, the subjects they looked at, and nearly half of these were either moderately or heavily septated. They managed to make their PI1 levels correlate either with mild, moderate, or severe septations, and, and all of those associations were statistically significant. Uh, additionally, these levels performed better than uh, other things that you might associate with an inflammatory effusion, such as a white cell count, platelets, CRP, or LDH. They felt that this showed that impaired fibrinolysis is the predominant pathway for septation formation in effusion, and they think that this PI1 might be an important target when considering intrapleural fibrinolytic therapy in the future. Overall, I think this, this sounds quite important in terms of understanding the pathophysiology, but we've already got quite good treatments for septated pleural effusions in, in TPA and DNAs used in combination. And uh, I think you know, any new targets would have to have sort of a better risk profile than, than these current medications to, to, to make it important. It wasn't really clear to me how the levels of PI1 might change within effusions over time. They've taken a snapshot of each effusion and, and feasibly these things might develop uh, over time. That was interesting. The third talk was by David Arnold, who's also from the Bristol Academic Respiratory Unit, and uh, he talked about pleural antibiotic concentrations informing treatment, which is the PACT study. He outlined how uh, pleural infection is quite bad, often associated with long hospital stays, uh, requiring long courses of empirical antibiotics. It needs to be empirical antibiotics based on what we know about the common bugs that cause empyema or pleural infection. But these are traditionally quite hard to culture, uh, probably because they, they reside more within the pleura than the pleural fluid itself. We don't as yet know much about uh, the antibiotic penetrance or best route to give antibiotics or, or even the duration that is optimal. 
people have looked at antibiotic levels that reach into malignant effusions, but hasn't really occurred in period infections so far. I mentioned some, some what sound fairly awful rabbit studies where they gave some rabbits uh, empyema and then measured how much gentamicin got into their pleura, which didn't sound very good for the rabbits. But their study was to look at the penetrance and persistence of antibiotics in an infected pleural space. They also compared with the levels in plasma and also what the impact of a loculated or septated effusion might be and the pH level within said effusion. So this was done at a single centre. They looked at 22 cases of either complicated paraneumonic or uh, empyema, so paraneumonic effusion or empyema, and there were 10 different antibiotics used, uh, and it just highlighted that only 4% of these had a positive pleural fluid culture. Uh, they took serial pleural fluid samples at various time points, and uh, you can guess that, that mass spectrometry uh, featured again here. They used a high-performance liquid chromatography method followed by mass spectrometry and, and used to analyse uh, the concentrations of various antibiotics. So he went through a number of their findings. The first one was amoxicillin delivered intravenously, and that included uh, coamoxiclav, uh, which is probably pretty commonly used in the treatment of empyema. They found that it was pretty good. It penetrated well into to the pleural space, and it stuck about for a long time. Importantly, well above the MIC, or minimum inhibitory concentration, for most of the common bugs, including things like staph and the strep milleri group and E. coli that you might find causing empyema. They also found that um, oral amoxicillin was pretty good. It wasn't as good as IV, but still well above the MIC for, for the bugs I've listed. Uh, metronidazole, which is commonly added uh, to cover things like fusobacteria uh, in empyema, that was pretty good. That stuck around in the pleura for quite a long time. And tazacin uh, also penetrated the pleura and stuck around for quite a long time. This was quite an important finding because they found that the, the uh, how long it stuck around in the pleural was longer than it does in, in plasma. You get a very high early peak in the plasma, but it, it persisted for longer uh, within the pleural space. And this raised the possibility that, that perhaps you could move to BD dosing of tazacin to treat pleural infection, which probably has some important implications for things like uh, outpatient antibiotic schemes. Uh, they commented that, that, that they said that, that loculation and pH within the fusion didn't have a significant effect on the antibiotic penetrance or, or duration of stay, but actually um, that they're really only sampling from one locule. So in a multi-loculated or septated effusion, they weren't sampling different locules. So I think that was slightly more difficult um, to believe. They, similarly to, to the previous study, they used an assessment of septations uh, based on an ultrasound score. They said they're going to take this on to study more antibiotics, which sounds good. What it didn't really talk about, so it, it was good to know that these antibiotics get into the pleural space, but it, it didn't correlate particularly with what we do with these effusions. So uh, whether these patients went on to require fibrinolysis or, or they required surgery and, and things like that. Uh, then sticking on the theme of pleural infection, uh, we heard from Majid Hassan from Alexandria University in Egypt, and he presented his study, which was called Length of Antibiotic Course in Treating Pleural Infection, a Randomized Controlled Trial and spoke about the fact that often uh, in cases of pleural infection, people go on to receive up to four to six weeks of antibiotics. There's often a significant proportion of this which is delivered intravenously. So they uh, randomized a selection of patients with confirmed pleural infection, either to have two to three weeks of antibiotics or four to six weeks and looked at uh, treatment failure. And they defined treatment failure as, as worsening inflammatory markers or imaging. At six weeks, they showed that 18% 
of uh, the people on the short course of antibiotics had failed treatment and 13% of the long course had failed. What I think was important here is that, that these patients were randomized uh, when they were already stabilized and they were allowed up to 14 days to stabilize. So I think what they're really saying is that if you stabilize someone with pleural infection quite quickly, you can get away with a, a quite short course of, of antibiotics, but perhaps uh, that, that doesn't apply to all comers. The last talk that I listened to was from Katie Ferguson, who's part of the Glasgow group, and uh, she talked about her meta-analysis, which is called the evolution of mesothelioma following initial biopsies showing benign pleural inflammation. Uh, this is quite an important concept because it, it's not unusual to perform a, a, a biopsy uh, in someone who's got asbestos exposure, and, and it may show uh, either idiopathic pleuritis uh, or non-specific pleuritis, a selection of other things. And there is a recognised rate of these patients who go on to develop a mesothelioma. It's not quite clear whether this is a, a, a sampling error or, or, or there's, there's no detectable mesothelioma at that point in time. They did uh, a meta-analysis of a number of quite uh, heterogeneous studies. Uh, I won't go into too much detail. I don't think that the meta-analysis necessarily creates good podcast material, but uh, they, they essentially found that uh, the, the evolution to malignant mesothelioma was about 7.5% in, in people who'd had a biopsy that showed one of those idiopathic pleuritis or a non-specific pleuritis, which is quite important. Uh, the reason they presented this data is, is it's going to inform a next big study that they're doing, which is called Meso Origins, uh, looking uh, at biopsy technique uh, in mesothelioma and those diagnoses of benign pleuritis. So that was the session. That's a really, really excellent summary. Thank you very much, James. Um, say from getting a mass spectrometer at the Royal Free, what, what, what is your take-home point from, or a couple of take-home points from this session that you think will change your practice? I think, importantly, um, if you've identified a bug in pleural infection and you want to switch on to oral antibiotics, I think you, you could probably feel quite confident in doing so if you've A, drained it and B, stabilised your patient. Mm. And I think I think that the, the first study that, that, that Hugh Welch presented is really, really interesting. And I think once that gets past the stage of having to take it to Aberystwyth to analyse it, and that becomes if they can interest uh, someone in industry and, and make a, uh, an easier way of doing that test, I think that probably got quite a lot of potential. Hi there, I'm, I'm Matt Berman. I'm a respiratory registrar currently at Barts Hospital in London. Um, quick fun fact about myself uh, a few years ago I rode my bike up Mont Ventoux in the south of France three times in a day with some mates because it was a way to celebrate one of their birthdays um, so I've been at BTS yesterday and today I've got an interest in infection so um, I went to several of the symposia and um, I'm just going to share some of the more interesting findings uh, hopefully in the more complicated ones in a way that is useful for a uh, everyone to hear what happened. So I went to a pretty complicated symposium looking at how we might treat lung infection in the future and it looks like one day we may be using good bacteria therapeutically to block the bad ones or even using viruses to kill them. Prof Brown from UCL shared some work with mutant strains of strep pneumonia that suggested that if you colonize the upper airways with harmless strep pneumonia mutants other virulent strains can't then colonize the airways uh, and this blocks the first step in the natural history of pneumonia and other disseminated streptococcal infection. Um, Prof uh, Mirko Schmolka from Geneva shared some work from mouse models which suggests that reintroducing normal lung flora after influenza infection may prevent secondary bacterial infection, which is a major cause of mortality uh, in human flu epidemics. 
He also delivered one of the random comedy moments of the conference so far by making the chairs of the symposium laugh out loud when he explained totally deadpan that it is virtually impossible to stop mice eating their own feces. The last talk felt like more of a journey into science fiction. Um, Helen Spencer, who's a paediatrician at Great Ormond Street, shared her extraordinary efforts to find an experimental treatment for a post-lung transplant patient with cystic fibrosis who was dying from disseminated non-tuberculous mycobacterium infection, an infection that was a hot topic at this year's conference. In this case, the treatment involved injecting the patient with phages, which are bactericidal viruses, which directly target the patient's pathogen. The work involved collaboration with a lab in the United States, and it was the first use of this experimental therapy in the UK. Um, you can find more about their paper in Nature Medicine uh, in a paper published by Dendrick and colleagues. There was another poster session and symposium also focusing on non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection. Cases of NTM pulmonary disease are on the rise in the UK, and it's a complicated condition to treat, and not one that most physicians have much experience of managing. It affects people with existing lung disease, including cystic fibrosis. Mimi Malrota and later Dr. Heike Kunst from Queen Mary University of London shared the results of a national survey showing that the care of NTM pulmonary disease is not standardised and there are only eight dedicated NTM clinics in the country. These have little clinical support from allied health professionals, which is very different to other complex infection services like TB or cystic fibrosis. The key messages from the symposium poster session were that we need to provide more coordinated care to our NTM patients, we need to follow available guidelines, and then we need to generate research with patient reported outcomes if we're to give these patients the care they deserve. There were also several sessions covering TB. Um, at the spoken session, I presented the results of the catapult trial, a cluster randomised control trial which compared the management of latent tuberculosis infection amongst recent migrants in primary care to secondary care. The treatment of latent TB infection is a key part of global TB health policy, but the traditional ways we provide care tend to result in poor treatment completion rates. Um, in this trial, GP practices were randomised either to receive treatment from a GP supervised by a community pharmacist or from a TB doctor with supervision by a TB nurse. Over the last decade, health policy in this country certainly has encouraged the transfer of care from specialist services into the community. But this has never really been investigated within TB services. Our trial was run in the London borough of Newham until 2019, and we found that treatment in primary care was safe and effective when compared to secondary care. Um, there were no differences treatment completion or adverse events. Treatment cost a lot less in primary care and was only at 43% of the cost compared to secondary care, which equated to a saving of £315 per case completed. However, we found that fewer patients accepted treatment when it was offered in primary care. We feel that our results provide good evidence that treatment within primary care is a safe and effective alternative to secondary care and should be offered in future TB control policy. In the same TB session, there was also a fascinating prospective study from Leicester. They followed a cohort of contacts of pulmonary TB who had evidence of latent tuberculosis infection, which based on current national guidelines would have been encouraged to take TB prophylaxis, but in this case, they followed them up without treatment for a median of four years. 10% of the group developed active TB. Um, the preliminary data confirms that there is a high risk in recent exposure and confirms the need to offer treatment to this group. But I'm guessing we're going to hear a lot more over the next few years from this study uh, with, regards to, with regards to the better ways to predict who is going to go on and develop active TB. And analysis of the blood samples will hopefully lead to the desperately needed new diagnostics in latent TB infection.
The Global TB Symposium also provided some very timely reminders of the global burden of TB disease. There's a really powerful talk from Ingrid Schumann about the vital role of community health workers in delivering the goals of the NTB strategy. And it was a real stark reminder that patient-centred care is not just a nice thing to aspire to, but it's something we must achieve to reduce the millions of global deaths every year in tuberculosis. Similarly, um, lots of us or lots of people within the respiratory field and infection diseases and global health want to develop research projects overseas. But And Stella uh, McPalmer from Tanzania, who is the Global South Panacea Network lead for a TB collaborative network of research, gave a really fascinating talk, which really was talking about the importance of developing local capacity when designing clinical research projects in the Global South. And we really have to face the realities of what has been in the past, in effect, academic colonialism um, through what she termed extractive research. And anyone applying for projects should really think about equitable collaboration where local researchers are setting research goals and really have control over the funding and long term capacity building. Finally, Esther Robinson from Public Health England gave some insight into the effects of the pandemic on TB control in the UK. And although TB cases fell in 2020 and lost their usual seasonal pattern, it looks like now in 2021, they're returning to the previous level seen in 2019. And importantly, we can't really rest on our laurels. Although TB cases have plummeted since 2010, um, it looks like cases are becoming increasingly complex with high levels of social complexity amongst the most vulnerable patients that we're treating. And it looks like the pandemic is compounding this because of the effects of isolation, but also the economic consequences of the crisis. Overall, there was lots to learn from both the NTM and TB sessions. I also attended a fascinating guest lecture by Professor Dame Linda Partridge. This was called The Global Challenge of Ageing. Trying to summarise this into a couple of minutes is exceptionally difficult, so I'll stick to the key points. We are ageing. Well done, Bonnie. Really nailed it there. Um, The world is getting older. Although during the pandemic in the UK, the life expectancy of males has actually gone down for the first time in decades. However, although we're generally getting older, health span is not keeping up with lifespan. People are living older, but they are frail, needing assistance, and the, they showed some graphs, the increase in dementia almost looks exponential as people are getting older, and multimorbidity is a huge factor. Professor Partridge's team have an aim to improve health, not to prolong life. She gave brilliant facts about ageing in different plants and animals. Apparently some animals actually don't age, and some trees can live for you know, 5,000 or so years, like incredible facts. Now, without her diagrams and amazing brain, I won't delve into the pathophysiology of ageing and instead skip to the interventions. The most obvious are lifestyle. As always, much of it comes down to, you guessed it, exercise and diet. Which exercise and which diet is debatable? But doing these things right can slow the ageing process and improve health span dramatically. But what next? There have been many trials on worms, flies and mice. They trialled all sorts from altering their DNA, which led to longer, healthier lives, to medications. Now, 
Many medics will balk at the concept of medications to slow or halt aging. I mean, how ridiculous. It reminds me of something from, it's going to show my age, Death Becomes Her. Does anybody remember that? These ladies who have immortality and then they get shot by cannons and all sorts. Anyway, reminds me of that. Medics generally have an idea that aging is a completely natural process, which we shouldn't mess with. Well, it seems that is not true. We don't all age the same, and the lives we live affect this. She, she actually gave an excellent counter-argument against why we shouldn't be you know, considering medications, in that, for instance, we prescribe patients with a risk of atherosclerosis statins, and we do that before the atherosclerosis actually happens or at a very early stage. However, atherosclerosis is actually a, a essentially a process of aging. So why should medications for directly for aging be any different? As they may never be able to get new drugs trialed and licensed for aging, the trials would have to be decades long, they are trying to repurpose drugs. So, rapamycin. This can be used to boost immunity in the elderly and sometimes used by cardiology. However, this can also reduce aging in flies and mice. Trametinib, this is usually used to treat melanoma, again has been shown to reduce aging in flies and mice. Metformin, the mechanisms for this are less clear and there is less evidence based. However, even this appears to reduce the aging process. Finally, there is even evidence that transfusing plasma from young animals to older animals or even to young humans to older humans with aging diseases such as dementia can improve outcomes. I mean, this all seems a bit science fictiony now, but just you wait. This, I really believe, is going to become more mainstream, and I doubt it will be long before we see medications such as trametinib, rapamycin, or maybe just good old metformin in non-diabetics on a few more drug histories. In the meantime, folks, Keep exercising and eat well, please. And that is that. Two awesome BTS episodes from the Winter 2021 conference. I learned a lot from the presentations at the actual event, but I actually learned even more from talking to and discussing the presentations with others, especially the expert lineup we had today. So Barney, go on. What are your key take homes from this episode? Wow. Yeah. Um, so much and actually i try to suppose that this episode and then you know the bts as a whole um there's always going to be a few key things which you know go away with you and mine is probably won't probably won't change everyday practice that much for me but i thought it's so important these these really sort of awful facts about poverty in in children in the uk i mean one third of children in the uk are in poverty i mean that's just mad absolutely mad and developing a greater understanding of how this affects our lungs as we age, along with things like nutrition and air pollution, and it all sort of you know gears up together. This has been a bit of a, a bit of a paradigm shift for me, and I sort of focused my mind in a different way um, on these subjects. And I've realised basically I need to do more. Yeah, th- there were some pretty um, stark take-home messages from those talks for me from an infection and diagnostics point of view. There have been some really great things coming out of this conference and this episode. 
It was great to hear about the exciting new investigations coming out from the plural talks, um, especially those which might change the way we diagnose TB and other infections. And actually, there was also some great useful information on how well antibiotics work in these patients. So yeah, loads of stuff to take home, digest and apply in practice. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for your help, Katia, with this BTS episode. Um, and thank you to all our presenters for helping us create uh, yeah, an, an awesome couple of episodes. Really hope you learned loads, listeners. And yeah, come come and hit, listen to us next time on one of the roundups, one of the climate zones or one of the specialist interviews. We've got loads coming up and it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, thanks, Barney. It's been really great. See you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Katia Florman. Thanks to all our amazing speakers and the awesome organisers at the BTS. Information and links from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at Journal Spotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes out to our logo lady, Natalia, and promotion stars, Isabella and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.